This sermon, We Are Interdependent, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, September 19th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. This morning we're going to be looking at John 17, specifically verses 20 through 26. Uh, Just to reiterate what Tim said earlier, uh, we are grounding ourselves in core doctrinal values that we hold as a church, but we also hold as a family of churches, that we are part of Sovereign Grace Churches. But if you are visiting with us, if you are not a member of this church, we believe in local church membership. We have a robust uh, doctrine of the local church. And so this is also serving as the new member class for those of you who are not members. And I just want to make a plug one more time for that luncheon. That's an important luncheon next week. Uh, It will be an opportunity for you to ask Tim and I questions uh, as pastors. But as well, it'll be an opportunity for us to be able to uh, really communicate to you why membership and what does that look like. Uh, You should have even received some membership documents that that we'll get an opportunity to review with you. But most of all, it will be a time to be able to come together and just get to know, the the pastors get to know you a bit more and vice versa. So please make that a priority. In our, or on our website, um, this shared value that we are looking at this morning, it says this. We believe that the unity for which Jesus prayed among his people should find concrete expression among believers and churches. Indeed, the New Testament testifies to a vibrant interdependence among churches in the first century. We seek to express a similar interdependence through our common fellowship, mission, and governance. Our fellowship extends beyond mere denominational affiliation. We are committed to applying the gospel together in relationships that foster mutual encouragement, care, and a glad pursuit of Christ-likeness. Our shared governance and mission protects our churches doctrinally and ethically and enables our individual churches to do far more together than we could ever do separately. This morning we finish up our grounded series by looking at our seventh core biblical value. We are interdependent. What we mean by that is that as an autonomous local church, we belong to a family of churches that are united in doctrine, fellowship, mission, and governance. And understanding this value begins in our text this morning. It begins in John 17. If you're not familiar with John 17, well, let me just say this. This morning, we find ourselves on holy ground. As we come to John 17, we we find Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion, communing with his eternal father. What would he say? What would he ask? For he knows that his death is just hours away. And here he is. What was on our Savior's mind. Well, stand with me and let's learn together. 1 John 17, verse 20. This is Jesus communing with his Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Maybe seated. Father, we ask for help this morning. Lord, I pray that you would fill me fresh with your Holy Spirit for the task of preaching your word. Lord, I am inadequate. I am no scholar. I am no orator. I am not a motivational speaker. I'm a sinner saved by your grace, called to serve your church in a unique way as a pastor, and right now in this moment, called to preach your word to your people. And I feel my utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit for such a task. Lord, I also pray you would fill the listeners with your spirit, for you have gathered them here this morning to hear this word, and you have intentions. You wish to enlarge our thoughts about you. You wish to draw our attention to the glory of your son. You wish for us to be transformed, to leave this place different than when we came in. So Holy Spirit, come. If there is anyone here who does not know you, I pray for the work of regeneration. This Holy Spirit would save souls this morning. And Lord, we pray, we pray that as your word goes forth, that it goes forth in the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have three points this morning for those of you taking notes. The source of our unity, the model for our unity, and then finally the experience of our unity. Like I said earlier, we, we come to a place, we find our Savior. It's the eve of his crucifixion. And the words here in John 17 reveal what was on the Savior's mind. In a word, unity. In a phrase, unity for the good of the church, whom Jesus was just about to die for, and for his glory, and ultimately his Father's glory. If you're unfamiliar with this, Text. This is known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus began praying in verse 1. In the first five verses, we find Jesus expressing his longing to be once again united with his Father in glory. His earthly mission that, that, be, that, that began, as we see in Philippians 2, that, that he did not count being God something to be grasped, but instead he, he humbled himself. He took our form, he entered into our world, and he gave himself as a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that sinners may be saved and that one day everyone would declare his praises. Then we see in verses 6 through 19, Jesus has a shift in his prayer. There's a shift in his focus. He, he specifically prays for the disciples. That is the original disciples. That small group that, that, is, now, uh, that is now just 11. He, 
he shifts and begins to pray that, that God would protect them, that God would preserve them, that God would keep them united in their gospel mission, that mission which he will be handing off, as we see in Acts 1, as he ascends and the angel says, now go. And then in verse 20, Jesus expands his prayers to the unity of all who would come to know him through this gospel mission, the church. And of all things that Jesus could have prayed for in this moment, he prays for unity. He's praying for unity. It's important to note not uniformity. (laughs) There's a difference. Jesus here, we will find, is not praying for a superficial ecumenical utopia. He is not praying. His prayer here is not an apologetic for a tolerance at all costs, including the truth. That's not the unity that the Savior is praying for here. In fact, he's praying for a what we might call a transcendent oneness. Notice verse 21. He prays that they may all be one, unity. And then Jesus gives us the pattern. He gives us the the, the pattern for that unity. He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. You know, Jesus taught in his ministry that he and his father were one in mind. There was a unity there. He, in the Trinity, they shared a mutual and unqualified love. Each person of the Godhead, equal in godness, yet different in their roles. Jesus taught that he and his father were united in mission. The Father devised the plan of salvation, and the Son carried that out. We, we heard a couple weeks ago from Pastor Tim that Jesus came, not with his own message. He came with the words that the Father gave him. He said things like, I, I come to do what my Father tells me to do. There, there was this oneness that was expressed, certainly, certainly that was that was seated in the, in the unfathomable glories of the Trinity, but yet was expressed in such practical ways as Jesus ministered to the people here on earth. But this is the prayer. This is the unity that he prays for. It's a unity of mind and love and mission, just as we see in the Trinity. Now, to be sure, we can't create this unity. We can't create this unity. We are called to make every effort to guard this unity according to Hebrews, or Hebrews, according to Ephesians 4, verse 3. But this unity that that the Savior is praying for on this night, it comes through the Spirit and and is blood-bought by Jesus himself. In just hours, Jesus will be doing the work to create this unity, this very unity that he is praying that all who would come after him and believe the church would share. It's a gospel unity rooted in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and then manifested through our relationships with fellow believers, through your relationships in your home through your relationships beginning with people right here that you share church life with. It's a global unity. Did you notice what he said in verse 20? He says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his inner circle of disciples, the ones that he just prayed for in verses 6 to 19. He goes on, he says, no, I don't just pray for these, but also for those who will believe in me. 
For those, as we turn the pages into the book of Acts and we see being saved on the day of Pentecost, the thousands that, 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 that heard and, and responded to the apostolic teaching of the gospel, all the people that, that, that would come to know Jesus through the ministry of the local churches we see being planted and born and bringing the message of the gospel, even being spread with the message of the gospel through persecution. All the churches that we read about in the history books, and this church right here, it's a global unity. Did you notice in verse 20, he says that he prays for unity for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That, that word all reminds us that this is a, a global unity. This is the big C church, the church universal, all those saved by God's grace. This is, this, this prayer is, this is, we see God's plan, don't we, in this prayer for the fullness of time. If you go to Ephesians 1.10, it says that, 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 that God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in Christ, all God's people everywhere, redeemed and restored into perfect unity by the blood of Jesus and under the lordship of Jesus. This is the fullness of God's redemptive plan. His goal in redemption is that the church would be united in and under Christ to the praise of his glory. That's what we see Jesus in these final moments praying, asking the Father for, oh Lord, as I am in you and you are in me, make them in us. It's a transcendent oneness. The source of our unity is transcendent. Now listen, I think it's safe to say we're not there (laughs) In one sense, we are, but in another sense, in a very real sense, we, we aren't there. Isn't it true that too often, too often the church today, we, we seek to unite, not around Christ, not around the gospel, but around other things, wrong things, methodologies, social causes, liturgy, all good things when kept in their place, all good things until they take our eyes off of Christ. Tim and I, we haven't been in a few years, but we used to go to this conference every year called Together for the Gospel. Have you ever heard of that? It was a great conference. For a few years, it was our pastor's conference, our our Sovereign Grace Pastor's Conference. But, But I loved the idea. I mean, you had the sovereign grace guys, just non-denominational guys, right? Reform yet charismatic. And then you had the Presbyterians. And then you had the Baptists. And then you had more Baptists. And then you had more Baptists. We didn't share everything in common methodologies, our history, and in particular, some of our doctrine. But I don't know, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 men together, united for the gospel. That was our mission. Whether it was three days in a week or is going back to the churches we have the privilege to serve, the gospel is what united us. I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are all automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must meet individ- to, w- to which one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers together, each looking away to Christ, 
are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Do you see that? When we fix our eyes on Christ, when we keep the main thing the main thing, we give ourselves to a rich, enduring, beautiful unity. Mr. Tozer's right. He's right. And he's right because our unity is bound up in Jesus. And not what we sing, not the way we sing it, not the way we do small groups. Our unity, the unity that we see Christ praying for here in these verses, it is completely bound up in the very one who is praying for this unity. Did you notice as we read it? Look at verse 23. Look what it says. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Do you see that? Our unity is for the knowledge of Christ to the nations. Did you notice there's a purpose clause there? That they may become perfectly one so that, in other words, purpose, here's why, that the world may know that you sent me. You'll notice in verse 24, our unity is to the glory of Christ. It's not only for the knowledge of Christ, it's to his glory. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Our unity doesn't exist so that our plans will go smooth and we will have no heartaches or hardships as we spread the gospel. No, our unity is to his glory. It is for the knowledge of him as the savior of sinners, and it is to his glory. And then finally, notice verse 26. He says, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. In other words, the unity of the church is not only for the knowledge of Christ. It is not only to the glory of Christ. It is because of Christ. See, what binds us together isn't church history. It isn't denominational affiliation. It isn't even absolute doctrinal agreement. It is Christ. He is the source of our unity. Now, Jesus didn't just pray for our unity, but as I said, in ours, he would die for our unity. And then he would be raised from the dead, having paid the penalty for sin, having received the wrath of God in our place, providing forgiveness making a way for the sinner to receive salvation through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was raised from the dead as a, as a stamp of victory. Jesus said it is finished on the cross and the resurrection was his father responding and it is enough. And then after 40 years of appearing, we know how Acts 1 begins. Jesus ascends. And then suddenly, the Spirit descends. And the gospel 
begins to go forth. And as the gospel goes forth, the very unity Jesus prayed for and died for is now modeled for us. And that's our second point, the model for our unity. We share our gospel mission in an intimate way. Not just, we're not just a small church in the middle of the desert. We share this gospel mission, this gospel unity in an intimate way with a family church is called Sovereign Grace Churches. This, if you will, ecclesiastical union, to be sure, isn't our idea. It isn't our idea. It's God's idea. It's God's idea. We can go to the first century church and see how God built it through his spirit. They were yoked together and united in mission in substantial, transforming, powerful ways. In 2 Corinthians 8 and in Romans 15, Paul, and by the way, I would just encourage you, go to some of these epistles I mentioned and and, and you can find where I'm drawing from. But in 2 Corinthians 8 and Romans 15, Paul shares how the financially struggling church in Jerusalem was generously supported by the churches of Macedonia. Churches like Philippi, churches like the church in Berea, this church in Jerusalem that was really struggling financially, other churches stepped up and came, came to the plate and helped them financially. When the church in Galatia began to stray doctrinally, it was the family of churches that formed the leaders of those churches that formed the Jerusalem Council, which existed to help them deal with the false teaching. You can read about it in Acts 15. Leaders from other churches, as a problem arose in Galatia and no doubt beyond, Paul ended his letter to the church in Ephesus, telling them he would send his friend Tychicus, his partner in mission. Why? To give them an update on their apostolic work and what God was doing in the other churches. Paul was jealous that the church in Ephesus knew what the Lord was doing in the other churches. In his letter to the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians, Paul requested, please make sure you get this letter to the other churches. Paul's whole purpose for writing to the church in Philippi was to thank them for their continuous and generous support as they partnered with him in planting churches. Probably numerous ways, but one way for sure in giving Paul began his letter to the church in Thessalonica by encouraging them how their faith was going forth and having an impact on the other churches. He said, your brothers and sisters scattered abroad, those other, they're hearing about your faith in God and it's encouraging them in their own. These churches, most of these people didn't, never met each other, didn't know each other perhaps, and yet their faith was having an impact on the brothers and sisters and others. Do you see an interdependence there? Listen, we can't know all the ways the early church experienced her ecclesiastical union, but this we know from Scripture. Those separated by many miles, these churches knew each other. In different ways, they served one another. They prayed for one another. They supported each other. And they knew what God was doing in one another. And that's just from a quick survey of the epistle letters. They were what we see in the first century church. We see independent churches interdependent on one another as an expression of their gospel unity. 
And just as we didn't create, our interdependence and gospel unity today, they didn't create theirs. This is how God ordained it. This is how God designed it in his infinite wisdom. He planned it this way. This is what Jesus prayed for on the eve of his death. This is, this is that which he died for, and this is no doubt something he had in mind when he said those words that we love to cling to, especially in times like these, that great promise that the church will prevail, that not even the gates of hell No government, no president, no social cause, no no sin that can be legislated. Nothing and no one can stop God's church. Christ has promised it. Not even the gates of hell. Satan is powerless to stop the work of the Spirit in growing and bringing the church home to their Savior and Father. This is no mistake. This is not something that we built. This is not something that the first century church built. This is God's doing. Listen, and that's why as a member and pastor of this church, I am deeply grateful for having the joy and privilege of experiencing our family of churches, this interdependence on one another, this unity that we share with other churches. And so I want to close by exploring really four primary ways that we experience and enjoy our unity. But as I do, Don't lose sight of the first two points, particularly the first one. God is at work building his church. And we have the privilege of being invited in, of being part of this this cosmic mission that is going to a place that we can't even begin to fathom the glory and beauty and perfection of heaven. Our Savior, our Father in heaven. Don't forget, this is God's doing. But I want you to see what he's doing. We want you to see what he's done so that we, we will be motivated and inspired to give ourselves to God's mission, not just as a local church in the middle of the desert, but as part of a family of churches, united and and interdependent on the body of Christ. Amen? So here's what I want you to see in the experience of our unity. One, we experience our unity in our doctrine. We, we are united in doctrine with sovereign grace churches. Now, the gospel creates our unity, yes. Ultimately, what binds us together is the gospel, yes. But please don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that doctrine doesn't matter. Some people will say that. Some people will say, well, doctrine just divides. Well, doctrine does divide, and at times it should divide, But to say that, that, that the gospel is what creates our unity does, is not to say that doctrine does not matter. It does. You know, if you, if you go into business with a business partner, and, you know, if Tim and I have two different, you know, Tim and I decide, hey, let's, uh, let's buy a bunch of motorcycles and rent them out, motorcycle Airbnb. I know Tim's been wanting to do that with me lately. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He wants to start a fly fishing uh, guide business. Okay. 
If we come into a partnership, but we have totally different ideas of what that business is about and what needs to happen, that will create real problems. That can create real problems. There needs to be some, we don't have to completely agree on everything, but we need to understand there are core things that we really need to be in agreement on. Well, likewise, doctrinal like-mindedness matters, particularly these values that we've been putting forth, these seven shared values, because they are a means for more effective and fruitful mission together. I've talked to people who have went off on missionary trips, other countries, and sometimes, you know, they're doing it with a with an institution that they don't know much about. But, but, you know, I always want to encourage them and pray for them. But I always ask them this. Do you know what they believe? Particularly about salvation. Because you may get your, find yourself in a situation where you're trying to help somebody and you're coming from two sides of the wall. And that, that could be difficult. That could create division within the mission. And so it's, it, it's important. Now, to be clear, doctrine doesn't save, but doctrine is important. In fact, this little book, Statement of Faith, 60 pages. If you don't have one, get one. If you haven't read it, read it. Read it. It's out there in the lobby somewhere. They changed the lobby completely on me. So I know it's out there somewhere, and they did do a great job, so I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you you might have to dig a little bit harder, and I can't tell you exactly where they're at. But this is more than ink and paper. This little book is an expression of our core beliefs that guide our mission as a local church and as a family of churches. It, 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 it guides our mission by protecting our churches from false teachers and false teachings that Scripture is clear about, especially to pastors. They will come in like wolves. This this statement of faith, it, it leads our churches into a deeper knowledge of the Lord and therefore hopefully a greater love for the Lord. This this statement of faith fosters faithful worship of God. It fuels faithful witness to the world. What we believe shapes what we do and how we do it. So being united in doctrine, primary doctrine, it's not every doctrine. There's there's differences here on how it's all going to shake out in the end. People love to spout their end time views about the millennium, right? There are some doctrines where we don't have to be completely aligned. But there are some that for the sake of a fruitful and effective mission, there needs to be unity. We share that unity in doctrine with sovereign grace churches. Second, we are united in fellowship. We are united in fellowship. I just want to, this is going to feel a little bit like just an information download, but I want you to just see some ways that we are united in fellowship. We announced a couple weeks ago that we got a team kind of lying in the wait. Hurricane Ida hits. It destroys. It leaves people's lives in rubble. We have a church in Covington, Louisiana. We have a church in New Orleans, Louisiana. And yes, they were affected. And like the blog post that you received a couple weeks ago, there's opportunity for you to give financially or to give of your time to go out there and help those people who are on gospel mission with you, people that you don't know, but people that you can serve and, and your church serves up an avenue for you to do that. Uh, in October, we have 
our, our three Southern California churches, they're doing a celebration. I know many of you probably have not heard that, but they're bringing the churches together for like a big old church camp. Three or four days of singing and preaching and, and all of and, and games and just fellowshipping. Three churches coming together. Do you know how many churches in Southern California? They don't get together with anybody, right? It's just them. They're not tied into a family of churches. Sharing that fellowship. And guess what? You get to be involved, at least through me. I'm going to go over there and speak. And so now you have three churches coming together in California and a pastor from one of our churches in Tucson coming together. United in fellowship. We have regional relationships. By the way, on the celebration, we're trying to get that going in Arizona, so pray. I'm meeting with the other two pastors in Arizona and the pastor in El Paso in a couple weeks when I'm over there for a retreat, and we're going to try and make that happen right here in Arizona. We're going to include the El Paso guys too, by the way. I'm, a, I'm attending a senior pastor retreat in three weeks where I will be able to fellowship and talk about the church and the Lord's work and be sharpened and be a tool that sharpens as I spend three days with the senior pastors in our region, churches from Colorado and Texas and Arizona and California, and I will be sharpened. What put the the office of deacon back on our radar was a conversation that we had as a group of senior pastors two or three cohorts ago. They were sharpening. I came back and said, Tim, we need to rethink how we're looking at this. That fellowship that then affects even what we're doing as a church. If you were here during the lockdown, everything was Zoom all the time, right? We were able to bring people like Bob Coughlin and his wife and Gary Cucci and his wife to Zoom with us, and, 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 and they, they, they lead uh, specific ministries in Sovereign Grace, but they were able to bring their expertise on marriage and parenting and family worship. And we, for those of you who joined us, we benefited from that, even though they're clear across the country. We are united in fellowship. There are different ways that we fellowship with our family of churches. Three, we are united in mission. Our mission together is to proclaim Christ as we plant local churches. And more than a slogan, that has real feet around here. Uh, just consider the life of our church. Tim Share, I think Tim shared Elizabeth last week, but 21 years ago, 22 years ago, small group of five or six families going to a Sovereign Grace event where they found out about Sovereign Grace. And suddenly you've got a handful of families driving to go to church up in Phoenix. Don and I were part of that church at the time. I can remember having them over after Sunday so we could fill their bellies before they headed home back home to Tucson, fellowshipping and getting to know them not realizing that, that soon the Lord would call Tim Lambros to plant a church down here. Before that, Tim was going to our church in Gilbert. He was being trained and, and equipped to be a pastor. He was equipped at our pastor's college. And then the church in Gilbert sent him out with this small group and planted this church. This church wouldn't be here had Sovereign Grace not been out in Phoenix doing a seminar. In the beginning of the life of this church, there were people from our churches in California, people from Gilbert coming to help Tim with the preaching. I remember coming down here to train children's ministry workers with another gentleman in the church in Gilbert. And then when it came time to purchase this property, Gilbert raised almost $20,000. 
almost $20,000 to help purchase this building. 2005, Donna and I were sent here to join Tim by our church in Gilbert. Do you see the life of this church, how intertwined it is with other churches? It's the way God designed it. There's an interdependence and a unity that the Spirit of God used to create this. Fifteen years later, this church sent out the Holtons to plant a church in Santa Ana, California, where now and perhaps right this moment, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached in the inner city of Santa Ana. Amen? Six months ago, in just one offering, you gave $40,000 to support our new church plant in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. We just sent out the final wire the last week in August. Thank you. And praise be to God. It's almost a year's budget for them. I guarantee you, if they were here, they would say, we are so grateful for sovereign grace churches. (laughs) We are so grateful that we are linked and united and in partnership with them. We've had people here, Brian Trask. We sent Brian Trask down to Bolivia to to help out with a connected orphanage, to help engineer water. So where is Brian? To help engineer their water or something like that. This church has sent me down there twice to, to, to serve and equip pastors. Well, we have a relationship with Bolivia. We've had, we, we've, we've, the Lord has used this small church to have an impact on the gospel going forth in a country that most of you will never even go to. And I guarantee you, that church is so grateful for you. We send men who are called to be pastors to our Sovereign Grace Pastors College so they can be trained not just in academics, but trained in how to be a pastor. What that looks like according to the scriptures. A little church like this. People don't just have to go off to some seminary completely disconnected. Nothing wrong with seminary. Please don't send me your emails. As a church, did you know that as a church, when you give 10% of what you give we give to Sovereign Grace to build a pastor's college, to plant churches, to create music, to do whatever the Lord is directing Sovereign Grace churches. And half of that 10% actually goes to our region to actually do the same thing right here in our own region, to plant churches and to be able to have an impact in the West in a greater way. Listen, we could go on and on. Here's the point. We are not alone in our gospel mission. God has united us to a family of churches, and he is at work through those churches, and he is at work through you. Finally, as we wrap up, united in governments. We are united in doctrine. We are united in fellowship. We are united in mission, and we are united in governance. In the, in the United States, we have this thing called the Constitution, that all 50 states agreed to submit to. In Sovereign Grace, we have a BCO, or Book of Church Order, that almost 100 churches willingly submit to. If you want one, call me, if you're into that kind of reading. (laughs) And from adjudicating conflict to affirming ordinations... The BCO gives our family churches structure, direction, and clarity on how we relate to one another in our gospel partnership. It's a gift from God. It gives us some edges. It makes clear things that tend to be foggy. Listen, we are an autonomous church. Nobody, we, nobody's telling us what we have to budget. Nobody's telling us what we have to preach. 
We believe at Sovereign Grace Church that the authority in the church belongs to the local eldership. But being part of Sovereign Grace Churches, we submit to this book of church order that binds us together in wonderful ways. Uh, Listen, I'm deeply grateful, and I think we all should be, that by the grace of God and for the glory of God, we have the privilege of partnering with a family of independent churches united in doctrine, fellowship, mission, and governance. So just three quick statements about applications. First, if you have questions, come see Tim Ryan. We'll buy you a lemon loaf. Second, church, let us be grateful for sovereign grace churches. We're not perfect, but the Lord is at work. He's doing a lot of good things. Let us be grateful that we're not just a small church out there doing our own thing. I'm in a pastor's group. We meet once a month, 20 pastors all up here in the northwest part of Tucson. I go really for two reasons. I want to learn from them. And second, if the Lord would so use me, I want to serve them. But you know what? Some of them go because that's all they have. That's their connection outside their church. We we don't have to say that. We have a family of churches that we are linked to. So let's be grateful for that. Let us continue to support sovereign grace churches in our hearts, with our words, how we talk about sovereign grace churches. That's important. That's very important. Whether it's your local church or it's our family of churches, let us support them in our hearts, with our words, and through our means. Maybe you think it would be a good thing for you to go help in Louisiana. Or maybe you want to give to Sovereign Grace Churches. However it is, let's continue to support Sovereign Grace Churches with grateful hearts. And above all things, let's keep praying for God's continued favor and mercy toward Sovereign Grace Churches. Because it is a privilege to be a part of Sovereign Grace Churches. Not because we're special, but because it is a tremendous means for us, an expression of God's goodness, as we do gospel mission together, whether that's right here locally or extra locally. Amen?